0: Men. Old Testament reading this morning, Psalm 37. Psalm 37 very beautifully puts before us the life of one who trusts in God, who delights in God, and who walks in righteousness. Obviously, this psalm points us in a very special way to Christ the Savior, and yet we can read its reflection, instruction for our own lives. Christ is perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful, perfectly righteous. He walked in righteousness every day, every second. Those who look to him in true faith are brought into his life and show forth imperfectly but sincerely the righteousness that God calls us to. Psalm 37, this will be pertinent to us, our consideration of the second chapter of James. Hear now God's holy word, as it is read to us, for the grass withers and the flowers will fall, the word of the Lord endures forever. Psalm 37 of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake saints; they are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart; his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. He will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. Behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen. James chapter 2. To go forward, the New Testament and our sermon text for this morning. James 2, verses 14 through 17 page 1200 if you're using the pew bible give your attention once again to god's holy word james 2 verse 14 what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us. What well, we are not, make us for your son's sake and by the power of the spirit. Amen. It is very frustrating when something does not do the main thing that it's purposed to do. So uh, a car does not get you to your intended destination. and right? a broken-down car, a very frustrating thing. a pen does not write. Uh, a light bulb does not turn on. In, in some of these instances, it may be because you have the, the wrong kind of thing. So uh, the wrong kind of car. If you drive a Ford, that's the wrong kind of car, right? That's why I didn't get to your desk. I'm, I did that for my father. He would always brag uh, on Fords from the pulpit. I really have no opinion of that. So if you're a car guy, I apologize. But maybe you put the wrong kind of light bulb. In, in the light fixture, that's why it doesn't turn on. Or there's something defective about your writing utensil, that's why it is not writing. It might be the wrong kind of thing, there might be something deficient about it. The beauty of faith and the gospel of grace alone, being saved by grace alone through faith alone, the beauty of faith is that it sets us right with God. How are you set right with God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. By receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation, a sinner is set right with God. And yet, there is a deficient faith. There is a a false faith, a vain faith, a wrong kind of faith that is truly no faith at all. And that is what James, under the power of the Spirit, puts before us uh, this morning in this text. And so, uh, James is basically doing two things. He's warning us against false faith, deficient faith, and spelling out something of what that looks like. And warning against false assurance in that false faith. Those who would assure themselves to say, I am right with God, through this false faith, warns us against that, and then also calls us to true faith. Calls us to true faith. He warns us against false faith. And he calls us to true faith. Two kinds of faith juxtaposed. One is really no faith at all, but we can call it a false faith. One is true faith. Let's consider these things together. First, James works with the assumption that there is a faith that saves. So some people want to pit James against Paul, and we're going to look at that in more detail next week as James uses the words justify when he's talking about faith. Um, But Some people went to pit Paul against James, and really, that can't be done. If if you look at it closely, you understand it. James is assuming that there is a faith that saves. In fact, so central to his letter itself is faith. Up until this point, what we've been talking about are the trials of faith and the tested genuineness of faith. So you see how central it is to the way that James thinks. Even in verse 1 of chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In other words, a kind of life not showing partiality. Uh, We are called to that because of the faith that we hold in Christ. In our passage today, verse 14, what good is it if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? In other words, there there is a, a faith that does save. James 1, verse 2, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So the life that a Christian experiences is a testing of the faith and a, a growth in perseverance of faith, central to all that James is doing. And what, also what he does centrally is assume that there is a faith that saves. So the faith that he condemns is a false faith. He's contrasting in this passage, at least in these four verses, true faith and false faith. Notice in verse 14, if someone says he has faith, so what is in question here is the claim of faith. This is not, you're not saying there there is a, a true faith in his heart that if certain things don't happen subsequently, then we can say it's not a saving faith. That's not what James is saying. If someone claims to have faith. And what we see is that it's not a lively faith. What does he call it? In verse 17, it is a dead faith. So a naked profession will mean nothing and profit nothing. Bare intellectual assent or recognition of certain facts, that's not saving faith. Thomas Manton, in some of his thoughts on the book of James, is speaking of true faith and false faith, which is living faith and dead faith, he uses the illustration of the pulse. He says, You may know there is life by the beating of the pulse. A living faith will be active. Faith is the life of our lives, the soul that animates the whole body of obedience. You Think of it like a, a heart that pumps blood throughout the body. Faith has a pulse to it, and it brings the life of Christ uh, the grace of Christ throughout the body of believer. It can be different in degrees. And that goes with the same illustration for those who have bodies. Uh, some people's hearts may be weaker. The pulse may operate at a, at a different speed. But wherever there is a pulse, there you have human life. You can rejoice as those who believe in the sanctity, the sacredness of human life. There is a a law now in in America, finally, that if a heartbeat, if a pulse is found, the child in the womb, you cannot perform an abortion in a state in our country. We give thanks for that, but it's so obvious. Where there is a pulse, there is life. And with true faith, there will be that pulse of spiritual life. James is not anti-reformed, anti-Protestant at all. in order to show that, we have to show the way in which uh, the Reformation talked about true faith. We see in the the Belgic Confession, for instance, Article 23, talking about faith. It says this, It is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man, for we do not speak of a vain faith, And that's what James is condemning, vain faith, false faith. We do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites a man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. It's impossible that it would be unfruitful. Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 11, says this, and perhaps you've heard this very useful summarization, that... we are saved by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone, but the, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That is a summation of, of this paragraph here. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So use another illustration using the human body. We'll, we'll move from the heart. the stomach. When you eat, it is only the stomach that is fit to receive the solid food that you take in. And the stomach receives that solid food. No other organ would be able to do this. And yet, the stomach is not working alone. We know that that's not the only thing within us that works to to digest, to process, and to take uh, all of the benefits of the food and uh, the drink that we take in. Faith likewise is the only fitting instrument to receive both forgiveness and righteousness. But it is not a, a standalone thing in the soul of a believer. We, we don't only have faith. Those who are brought to life in Christ have not only faith, they have repentance unto life. They, they have the life of Christ pulsing through them, love to God, and a desire to honor and to glorify Him. It's like the stomach. Only the stomach is fit to receive that solid food, but it's supported by all the other organs, the ecosystem of the body, and takes the benefits uh, throughout the body. We saw in both of those documents that we quoted that true faith works by love. What, is, uh, what does it mean that faith works by love? Well, to return to Thomas Manton and his thoughts, he says that uh, faith, when it rightly apprehends what God has done, it uh, responds with love to God. When a sinner hears the proclamation of what God has done for you, and when the lights go on to see what has happened in the gospel, and you say, God has loved me so much, this is the love of God, that he sent his son to die sinners, that I might be reconciled to God. That realization begets love in return to God. So faith that works by love is activated by a realization that God loves me and then produces a return of love to God. Manton says there are basically three things which incline the soul to serve God. And the first thing is a forcible principle, which is love. Love is that forcible principle, that which activates a life of service to God. The second thing is a mighty aid, the Holy Spirit. The third thing is a high aim, the glory of God, to see that God does all things for his glory. That's what a believer does. We we serve God because we see the glory of God at the center of it. This idea of apprehending the love of God, John Newton, obviously so wonderful to to highlight these very things as he does. He says this in a, a letter that he wrote to his wife, actually. He says, Do you not see and say, He has done great things. Take a step back. Zoom out. Look at what God has done for you. Do you not see that and say, He has done great things goes on to say this in another letter. He says to his wife, he says, The power and the faithfulness on which the successive changes of day and night and of the seasons of the year depend and which uphold the stars in their orbits is equally engaged to support you, his child, creator of all things, who sustains all things, using his power to accomplish redemption, and to purpose all of those means to bring you to himself, and that power used to sustain you and support you in your life, do you not see and say, he has done great things? True faith very simply says this, God loves me, and I love God. True faith very simply says, Jesus Loves me, and I love Jesus. James gives us the example of the empty faith, the false faith, by using the uh, situation of empty words. So empty words, empty faith. The example he uses is a brother or a sister who is in need, who has uh, earthly needs, and that person is then, in response, not provided for In 1 John, we have something very similar. He says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. It's very, very explicit here in James. This is a brother or a sister. This is a fellow member of the body of Christ. This is someone who looks to the same Savior, who has been brought to faith in the same gospel. So there, there's a very close, uh, very close connection here, as close as can be, the body of Christ, the, the fellowship of the Spirit. Certainly we're called to, to do good to all people. Let us do good to all, uh, especially those of the household of faith. As, Christians, our posture in helping those is first to the fellow members of the body of Christ, but then also we are to be generous in seeking to do good to all people, to all men. James here is highlighting that very close connection. A brother or sister is in need, but they are closed off. But What is so unfitting about that is that you are with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with all of us here. What do we do? We look to the same God and we have apprehended that love. We together have said God is generous to us. God has been gracious to us. He has taken us out of the pit and set our feet on a rock. We together have that realization. We together have come to that faith. He saved us. He loves us. And so what's so unfitting is that when we see our brothers or sisters in Christ who have need, and we have the ability to help. As John says in 1 John, as James says, there is something profoundly unfitting about that, and it is evidence, as James says, of a false faith. The response here is, is a. what makes it so brazen is that it's a, a spiritualized response of well wishing. So go in peace, as we see in uh, verse 16. Go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. So that, that mimics a religious salutation. God will make all things well. Go, be warm, be filled. Imagine saying that to someone who's cold and hungry. A brother or sister who is cold and hungry. God will make all things well. He has made all things well. In fact, go, be warmed and be filled. James says, what, what good is that? What good does that do? If a... Uh, president says that his military won't leave a particular country until all of the citizens who want to get out of that country will get out, but then the military doesn't actually stay there, what good is that? What good is that, especially to those who are left behind? Further illustration, perhaps more more pointed to uh, the situation of the church in America, Uh, what good is it if a church has the apostolic reading, grace to you and peace, all is well, and yet doesn't actually preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many churches where that is the case. They'll have an old, established liturgical form. Grace to you in peace. You're right with God. All is well. But then actually don't proclaim Christ. What good is that? And the second what good is that that we see in verse 16, refers back to the first phrase of our passage, what good is it, my brothers? And so it functions two ways. What good is it for the person who has need? What what good is it for the person who is hungry and cold? What good is it for the person who says they have faith, who does not help the brother or the sister who is in need? It profits nothing to either of them. The poor will not thank you for your good wishes, neither will God thank you for saying that you have faith. What is James doing with this? He's giving us a way to discover deceitful dealings with God. Someone may say, well, I have faith. I am right with God. I know that God looks upon me and sees that I have faith. But it puts that claim to the test in a sensible and a visible way. You see your brothers and sisters in need. You are able to help them. Do you help? It puts that spiritual claim to the test in a sensible and a visible way. The life that is lived, the fruit that has been brought forth, Jesus says you will know them by your fruits, oftentimes the work of Officers in the church, elders in the church becomes this difficult work of someone who may have particular sin in their life that needs to be worked out. And they may claim, yeah, I'm right with God, I have faith. They say, well, what about these patterns in your life? And why should this matter? It should matter because we should only be satisfied with that which sets us right with God. We should only be satisfied with that which saves us. Will this faith save me? Will a false faith save me? No, it will not. So the questions to ask do I love Jesus Christ? And is that love for Him? Pulsing out into my life with a desire for the glory of God. This is not meant to be overly inward. We're not meant to, uh, to look only inward and to, to obsess over the things that we find because we're always going to find deficiencies in ourselves. We're always going to find reasons uh, to say, boy, I need to improve. Boy, I need to get better. It's not to be overly inward as much as a call to give full consideration to the truths of Scripture to give full consideration to what God has done for us in Christ, to look at redemption and to see your sin and misery and to see the love and the mercy of God that is shown to us in Jesus Christ and to rest in those things. It's a call to the gospel. It's a call to believe and to trust and to receive and to rest in what Christ has done. For us. It's not to create doubts in those with a tender conscience, but it is to awaken those whose hearts are hardened to their own self deception. Finally, then as we close at the empty words, the empty faith, we are called to a faith filled life which is filled with good works, a faith filled life which is filled with good works. What are we called basically to do? What's the what's the remedy? Well, James in evaluating faith and contrasting vain faith with live faith or dead faith with living faith, ultimately what he is holding up is it's not that we just okay, now we start running towards works. It's a call to genuine faith. Abandon dead faith. Come to Christ in the fullness of what he has done. Apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Look at the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's a call to true faith. We are to, as Hebrews says, look unto Jesus. That's a very simple call. If we look unto Jesus fully with the eyes of faith, as we rest in Him, as we look to Him in reliance and dependence, then we will see several things. If you look unto Jesus, you will see several things. First, you will see your safety. Secondly, you will see your privilege. Thirdly, you'll see your duty. And fourthly, you will see your happiness in Christ. So first, your safety. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus saves us to the uttermost, the great high priest who can bring us to God, who can reconcile us to God, as we heard last week, so... So wonderfully, Reverend Hollister, in in Christ, we are safe in the arms of God. All is well. He is able to save to the uttermost. If you look unto Jesus, you will see your safety. The great high priest. If you look unto Jesus, you will see your privilege as a member of this kingdom, as a child of God, as a servant of the King. Christ is not only the king of kings, but he brings us to himself as our king. And it becomes our great joy to be dispensed in his service. Our joy is to serve him. That's what's so marvelous, what's so wonderful about what Christ does. He takes the high calling of taking up your cross and he changes us so that it becomes our great joy to do so. I know I've mentioned it before. Napoleon, one of the things that made him so in awe of Jesus is he knew that if Christ were to descend and place his feet upon the earth and call his children, his servants to arms, most of his army would be gone in a moment. He said, I can coerce men in my military to do things, but I cannot create in them the kind of love that they have for their Savior, Jesus Christ. It becomes our privilege to serve. He's our priest, our safety our king gives us our privilege as our prophet. And then finally, he gives us our duties, the, our marching orders, the life that we are to live. If we look unto Jesus, if we remain fixed upon him, we receive his words with open hearts. We receive his words and his instruction as the, the precious morsels which alone can sustain our lives. Look unto Jesus. You will see your safety. You will see your privilege as his servant. You will see your calling that he gives to you. And that will all issue then in unspeakable happiness. We continue looking to Jesus because when we see the fullness of how he, as our prophet and priest and king, sustains us, he becomes our greatest and only true and lasting source of joy. Newton says, if we could live more sensible of his goodness, if we could sense more deeply, more fully, the goodness of God, that—that that in many ways, that is what the life of faith is about. Growing in how much you sense how good God has been to you. Growing in how much you sense that God loves you in Jesus Christ, growing in your sense of what Christ has done for you. He says, could we but live more sensible of His goodness and maintain that feeling of gratitude towards Him? We should be happy. We should be joyful, filled with joy. The call... James is not calling us to run into bare works that we're going to get through by our own strength. He's calling us to true faith. He's calling us to look unto Jesus and to keep our eyes fixed upon him so that he would create in us those things that issue forth from a true faith, from a lively faith that pulses Throughout the life, the body, the soul of a believer. These are the things that we are called to. and May God do so by the power of his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would work mightily in us by your word and by your spirit. Cause us to look unto Jesus... To find our all in him. For more than all in him we find. We ask, O Father, that you would create in us a love for righteousness that flows from the love of Jesus Christ. As we read in Psalm 37, so many words, encouragement uh, to do these things, to delight ourselves in you. May Jesus, as our prophet, as we fix our eyes on him, We see his righteous life that he lived and also may that encourage us to to live like our Savior. Oh Father, forgive us and cleanse us and renew us, all for Christ's sake. Amen.